If you've got a Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, not a problem. There's probably one under your chair or someone next to you. And 1 Samuel chapter 18 is on page 241 in those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, just take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. Enjoy. Hope you read it quite a bit. Now, if you haven't been here, say, at all for this Shepherd King series or like me, you've been out for a week and you're growing like a vacation beard, awesome. Let's get everybody just caught right up to speed with where we are in this series. So the Shepherd King series, essentially, what we're doing is we're walking through the life of David as revealed in First and Second Samuel. And over the last couple weeks, what we've seen are massive shifts in David's life. You see, David, as we began looking at him, is a very young man, almost a boy. He's a shepherd and a musician. He's the youngest son in his family living during the reign of Israel's first king, King Saul. Now, if you've been keeping up with 1 Samuel, you know that where we are in chapter 18, some massive things have happened. Saul has actually been rejected by the Lord as king because of a series of, let's call them partial obediences, that's really disobedience. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in secret, the spiritual leader of Israel, a prophet named Samuel, anoints David, this shepherd musician boy, as king, but he anoints him in secret only before his family. But Saul's still reigning as king. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David bursts onto the scene. And if you were here last week or you've ever heard of anything in the Bible, you probably know a little bit about what happened in 1 Samuel 17 because it's the fight between David and Goliath. It's a most unlikely fight because you've got this shepherd boy who's not even old enough to be in the military yet. And his father sends him to the front lines to check on his older brothers who are fighting in Saul's army. And when he gets there, there's this giant named Goliath, this warrior of the Philistine army, who's defying the army of Israel, the army of the living God, and they're terrified. They won't go out and fight him. And David thinks the scene is so strange because he knows that ultimately it's the Lord who fights for Israel. So he's like, Don't worry, Saul, I got this covered. I'll go fight him. And he triumphs over Goliath. Sends the Philistines packing. And as you can imagine, as soon as this fight is over, David's life will never be the same. He triumphs over Goliath, chopping off his head with Goliath's own massive sword. And he's summoned to speak to the king while still holding Goliath's head in his hands. And not only has he won the acclaim of Israel and the attention of the king, but the fight concludes with something that would change David's life forever. A friendship. Maybe the most powerful, maybe the deepest friendship you'll see in the entire Old Testament the end of the fight with Goliath ushers in a friendship between David and Saul, the king's son, named Jonathan. If you've ever had a friendship 
kind of like the one between David and Jonathan, you know that few things change your life like friendships like they had. And that's where I want to focus a little bit this morning. See, the big idea we're going to focus on this morning is really, really simple. It's spiritual friendship. It's what we're going to be looking at together. Spiritual friendship through the lens of the story, the the things that go back and forth between David and Jonathan. And now, I'm not at all, I want to say up front, I'm not at all thinking or believing that we're all going to have a David and Jonathan-like relationship with everyone in the church or something like that. But what I want to do is I want to take you into the depths of this friendship so that we can see some of the common marks of what I'm going to be calling spiritual friendship. Some of the things that if we were to pursue in our relationships with one another would probably cause greater joy, greater God-centeredness, greater life-giving relationships than we have now. Because I know, you know, one of the things I've noticed as I talk with various people within City Light and outside of it is one of the things we're all searching for are spiritual friendships. But how do we get them? What do they look like? What sort of characteristics mark them? That's what we're going to see as we delve into the story of David and Jonathan. We'll, we'll look at the story and along the way pull out four things that I think mark nearly all spiritual friendships. Four marks of spiritual friendship. Let's kick off the story in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, so that's as soon as David is done speaking to Saul right after he's killed Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This is why I'm calling it spiritual friendship. What knits these two together is ultimately God. They're knit together on the level of the soul. And it says, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So this spiritual friendship is where God is at the center and you actually consider the other as significant as yourself. God is the center, considering the other as if not more significant than yourself. And Saul took him that day, so this is now the king, and Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So David's triumphed over Goliath and Saul's like, you're working for me. That's just a great management thing. You see someone awesome, don't let him go home. It's like, that's it. You just, you're staying with me. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Okay, so this commitment with, with him. Because he loved him as his own soul. And now Jonathan's going to do something that is actually far more significant than Jonathan knows. You remember, we've been reading through 1 Samuel. We know that David's already been anointed as the future king. Well, on human terms, who do you think was the next in line for kingship? Saul's son, Jonathan. But now watch what he does, foreshadowing the future. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe. That's the royal robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. That's a big promotion from a shepherd. 
And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The first mark of spiritual friendship that I think we see here is something you may not, you might not guess. I think the first mark of spiritual friendship is that you don't have to have a lot in common to have it. You don't actually have to have a lot in common to enjoy deep, rich, life-giving, what we're calling spiritual friendship. If you look beyond the surface here, I mean, when you look at this, is, this scene, it's pretty incredible. You've got this guy who's, they're making a covenant with one another. They're giving one another their clothes. Like, th- this, is, this is deep. When two guys give one another their clothes away, you know this is a serious friendship. And you look at it, you go, that's amazing. They must have had everything in common. It must have been so natural. It's actually, if you look beyond the surface, not the case. If you look beyond the surface, they probably had very little in common. They're not from the same family. They're not from the same clan. They certainly don't have the same socioeconomic background. David's from in's family. Jonathan's the son of the king. Jonathan's been in Saul, his father's army, for some time. David's too young to be in the army. They're not the same age. And certainly, I would guess that they don't have a whole lot of similar interests. Jonathan's a trained warrior. David plays the harp. Okay, no offense musicians, but you know what I'm kind of getting at here. So the reality is they don't actually have a ton in common. But what they do have in common are the things that actually are necessary for this true, deep spiritual friendship. If you look at this passage, they really have three things in common. One is a united love for and trust in Yahweh. If you read the passages in which both Jonathan and David fight, the Philistines, what you'll notice is they say nearly the exact same things before they fight. Jonathan fights the Philistines himself in chapter 14 and David in 17, but if you read the narratives, it's amazing. They basically say the identical thing. The Lord will fight for us. I'm outnumbered, but the Lord is the warrior. I trust in the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. You see, they have this incredible trust in and love for Yahweh, that's really what brings spiritual friendship together. You don't have to be the same age. You don't have to have a ton of things in common. You don't even have to have common interests. The thing that binds it together, first and foremost, is this common love for the Lord. The second one is a common mission. They have a common mission. They're both trying to expand the kingdom of Israel. In a similar way, we as Christians bear witness to the coming kingdom of Christ by living as disciples who make disciples. They had a common mission. And of course... They have a commitment to one another. So one of the things you realize when you start to delve into spiritual friendships, you don't need to have a ton in common. You need Yahweh, a common mission, and a commitment to one another. And and I just want to say that the commitment piece is big. Most of us hope that spiritual friendships will just happen. It'll just be natural. If they're meant to be, it'll all coalesce together. It's almost never the way it works. David and Jonathan make a commitment to one another. It's sort of like, you know, a discipleship group or something. Like, we will meet at this time every other week, and we will do life together. It's a commitment because life is so dang busy. So this leads me, this first point kind of leads me to a question. If you're in this room and maybe you feel like you lack spiritual friendships, could it be 
that you have unrealistic expectations for what's necessary for true spiritual friendship? Could it be that you're waiting to find someone with, that sees the world the exact same way you do, has the exact same interests, likes to do all the same things, thinks a very similar way? If you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting a really long time for something that the Lord calls us to here and now. You don't need to have a ton in common to have spiritual friendships. You don't even have to have in common the desire at first. David's just doing his thing. Jonathan's like, I'm making a covenant with you. That's it. I love that. It takes commitment. It's not going to happen by accident. You don't have to have a million things in common. You have to have a couple things. You've got to pursue it with all that you've got. Is that your approach to spiritual friendship? Or are you passive or perhaps setting up expectations that are just not realistic? Oh, we're, gonna, we're just going to be soulmates. Okay, Jesus is your soulmate. Now just go make some dang friends. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that, that was actually meant for my conclusion, but, you know, we'll just work it in now. But I, I've actually, I've seen this principle hold true in, in my own life with some of my spiritual friends. I think off the top of my head about um, Mark Jacoby. You guys know him. He's one of the elders of the church. I, we have a true spiritual friendship. Could not have less in common. Okay, over a decade separates us in age. Um, Mark is from New York. He is a scholar He went to Penn, and he's a computer programmer by trade. Uh, I went to Penn State, a little bit different. Um, I am not a scholar. Mark's an incredible musician. I maybe know five chords on guitar, and I certainly do not like computers. So, I mean, we just don't, don't have a lot going there. But we have a common love for Yahweh, a common mission of being disciples who make disciples, and we've committed to one another. He's like, I want you to be my, he didn't say spiritual friend, but he's like, I want you to pastor me. I want you to shepherd me. Like, let's get together. And so we get together every other week. We have this commitment to one another. And I tell you what, it brings incredible depth in life to me, despite the fact that like normally, Mark and I would not have a ton to do together. So the first mark we see from these two is that it won't just happen Spiritual friendships, you don't have to have a lot in common, just a couple things. And you've got to pursue it with all that you've got. Now, let's keep going with the story. You'd think at the, this junction in 1 Samuel 18 that life is just exquisite for David, right? I mean, if you go from tending sheep to killing Goliath, getting a best friend and a new job that's like just under the king, you're thinking, all is well. Like, what could, what could get better? But things immediately start to go awry for David. And the reason is relatively simple. Saul keeps sending David out on these military campaigns, and David continues to be successful. And as a result, David gets incredible acclaim all throughout Israel. And it makes Saul mad with jealousy. You see, the reality is that Saul knows in the back of his mind that the kingdom is already being yanked from his hands. You remember the Lord rejected him because of his partial obedience. And so when he was rejected as king, Samuel, the spiritual leader, told him, your kingdom is going to be given to someone 
better than you. A man after the Lord's own heart. And as he sees David going out and being successful because the hand of the Lord is upon him, he knows this is the guy. And his love and trust in David turns to utter hatred. And really, 1 Samuel 19 is basically a chapter all about Saul attempting to kill David over and over again. And so David flees. He's exiled. This incredible life is suddenly taken a turn that seems totally disastrous. But then in chapter 20, he comes back. Comes back to see his best friend, Jonathan, to get help from him. So we'll we'll pick up the story in chapter 20, verse 1. Their souls have been knit together, not a lot in common, but enough. They love one another like their own souls. And if you've ever had a best friend have to go away or suffer, that's where that friendship can so often be forged and deepened. And now David's back and he needs help. Then David fled. This is 20, verse 1 from Naoth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me, and why should my father hide this from me? See, Jonathan doesn't know that Saul's after David. But David vowed again. This is a, you know, in friendship, you can just be straight up with people. David vowed again, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, Tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. So David and Jonathan should be at the king's table for this festival. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good... It will be well with your servant. He's referring to himself, David. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field and they're going to devise a plan for how to figure out if Saul really wants to kill David or not. But in this scene, we see a second, I think, mark of spiritual friendship. That spiritual friendship is both vulnerable and encouraging. Spiritual friendship's both vulnerable 
and encouraging. You notice what David is saying here? I mean, we know that David has done nothing to deserve capital punishment. As readers, we know that. And yet, David humbly comes before his best friend. He goes, judge me. Look into my heart. Tell me the truth. Am I sinning? Am I doing something foolish? Do I deserve this? If so, just kill me yourself. Spiritual friendship, true spiritual friendship is vulnerable. It's not purely surface level. Spiritual friendship is saying to someone, I want you to look into my life. And I want you to be honest with me. You've got free reign here. Now, of course, you're not going to say that to all, you know, all the couple hundred people you see on a Sunday morning. But do you have those people in your life? Like here in Philadelphia, where you've said to them, I'm not waiting for you. I want you to look into my life. I'm not waiting for it to magically happen. I'm not waiting for there to be this like three-year depth of relationship before I pursue it. No, just will you look into my life? Will you tell me the truth? Spiritual friendship is vulnerable, but it's also encouraging. You notice how uh, Jonathan responds? David's getting a little deep here. It's getting a little introspective. I mean, let's give him a break. His life is on the line. So he's probably a little emotional and freaked out. And you notice what Jonathan does? He just pulls it back up. He's like, dude, this is not what's going on here. This is going to be okay. I've got your back. He encourages him. He doesn't let it stay heavy the entire time. He encourages him with what's true and hope for the future. That. We have to balance these out in our spiritual friendships, both vulnerability and encouragement. They go together. When you have only one without the other, you get some really weird relationships. You ever had those relationships where it's like all it is is morbid introspection over and over and over again? And then you're like two weeks later, you're like, I think I'm done, and I think I need a nap. You know, it's, it's exhausting. But the ones that are only encouraging where it's just like, hey, everything's great, you're great, you're beautiful, I like your shirt, this is awesome, let's just, dude, there's no depth to it, there's no vulnerability, no one knows you, and so the encouragement just doesn't mean a lot. Doesn't mean a lot. I mean, I love that we have greeters here on Sunday morning, so the greeting team, don't get me wrong. But if your whole life of relationship is like the greeting team type relationship, where like when you come in on Sunday morning and I'm like, love your plaid, because I do, like that... That's not that encouraging because we never got any depth in which I could encourage you from. You need both. And that's what you see here with David and Jonathan. Now, the question then under this heading is, do you have friends that have free reign in your life? Friends that you're not waiting for, but you're actually going to them and saying, I want you to take a look. And I want you to both reprove, rebuke, and encourage me? And are you that way with others? Have you asked others permission to be that in their life? If they say, no, it's okay, you just move on. You don't end the relationship, but not all are going to be David and Jonathan-esque. Now, what do they do from here? They devise a plan. So remember, they go out into the field, and they essentially devise a plan to trick Saul into revealing if he really wants to kill David or not. And it's this plan of, you know, we're going to have David not go to dinner, and, you know, I guess Saul's a really emotional guy. If he doesn't come to dinner with me, I want to kill him. So they devised the plan, and relatively early on, Saul not only is furious that David isn't there, 
but he knows what Jonathan's up to. He knows Jonathan has sided with David over his own father. And boy, does he read him the riot act. Chapter 20, we'll skip down to verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, this is great, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You know you're mad when you start insulting your child's mother. Um, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's the Bible's version of cussing. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Wow, he's laying it on him. He's shaming. Uh, You ever been shamed before? It's a manipulative tactic to try to win Jonathan back over. He's shaming him and tossing a little guilt in as well. Uh, If you're a parent like me, I just want to briefly encourage you that this really doesn't ever go well, so just let it go. Manipulation via shaming, guilting, it's not a good parenting tactic. It won't work. It only tears down. Just let that option go. Okay, that was free. Let's move on to what this passage is really about. And then he says this, and this really gets at the heart of why Saul is so ticked off at David. Verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Yeah, Saul's right. Saul's right about this one. If David's alive, certainly the kingdom is not going to pass to Jonathan. Jonathan's got a major choice in front of him. Who knows what his future holds? Typically, when a dynasty switches hands, the old dynasty all dies. You don't want possible heir apparents to the throne coexisting with you in your kingdom. Now, Jonathan loves David, but love sometimes only goes so far. His future is on the line, and that's what Saul's really appealing to. Your kingdom, Jonathan, it's not going to go well for you. And that's what makes the rest of this passage so extraordinary. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? He's not focused on himself. What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan is now lumped in with David. Saul's trying to kill them both. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger. Okay, yeah. And ate no food the second day of the month. And then I love this line. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. He was grieved for David. His father really just disgraced him. Pulled his entire future into question. Promised him the kingdom wouldn't be his. Made fun of his mom. And Jonathan is grieved for David. 
This brings us really to the third mark of spiritual friendship, which is fierce loyalty. Spiritual friendship is marked by fierce loyalty. In the words of Philippians 2, spiritual friends seek the interests of others and consider the other more significant than themselves. Spiritual friendship is about looking outward to the other, seeking their good. It's a joyous self-forgetfulness. Jonathan's future is getting dashed, and all he can think about is the shame that might be coming to David. For you, are spiritual friendships all about tit for tat? You getting what you need? Am I getting enough out of this? Am I really being fed? Am I really being loved? Do they text as often as I text them? Do they initiate the way I initiate with them? Or is spiritual friendship for you fiercely loyal? Where you are committed wholeheartedly to the well-being of the other. This can be spiritual friendships on any category from marriage to roommates to everything in between. Fierce loyalty. That's what marked David and Jonathan. But as we close out this chapter, we also know that this is, in a sense, the end. In a sense, the end of this relationship between David and Jonathan. It's not that they're having some sort of like horrible friendship breakup. That's not it at all. No, it's, it's a bit deeper than that. See, they both know that the future of Israel all hinges on David. In fact, David is the one through whom the Messiah will come. David has to live. And for that to happen, David has to leave. For David to live, he's going to have to leave. And that means that in a day with no cell phones, no email, no texting, this signifies a massive shift in the relationship. If David stays, he dies, and the kingdom dies with him. And so at the end of chapter 20 and verse 41, we see this relationship take a massive turn. This is the last time they'll ever speak face to face. And as soon, this is verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. David still humbling himself before Jonathan. And they kissed one another, a sign of farewell, and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you. Remember, that's the mark of spiritual friendship. The Lord is between us. And between my offspring and your offspring forever, they've made, they made a covenant to take care of one another's families rather than murdering one another's families, which would have been more the norm as the dynasty shifts. And David rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. They separated for the sake of the kingdom and they would never come back together again. And the uh, first Samuel ends with Jonathan dying in battle. And this last scene shows us the final and maybe one of the most important marks of spiritual friendship, which is that spiritual friendship is always subordinate to God and his kingdom. 
spiritual friendship is always subordinate to God and his kingdom. See, this is where we realize how central the gospel, the central message of Christianity is to spiritual friendship. See, the gospel is what empowers this kind of friendship. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, that God is redeeming a people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on their behalf. It's the most glorious news in the universe that sinners can become saints, not because of what they can do, but because of what Christ has done on their behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. It's incredible news. It's the heart of Christianity. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's the core of what we believe. Christ's life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. He's the only way, the only hope in life and in death. And the gospel's so central to friendship because it empowers it. You see, when you believe that Jesus has actually sought your good above his own to the point of his death, it not only empowers you, it frees you to do the same in your relationships. You can look outward rather than inward because Christ has taken care of you. But it also, the gospel also comforts you. Because when you subordinate your spiritual friendships for the sake of the kingdom, sometimes those friendships are temporary. Yeah, I just came back from vacation in California. I saw friends and family that I grew up with, and it hurts every time I come back. Those relationships have had to shift, but God has called me here to Philadelphia, and some of those relationships have to be subordinate for the sake of the kingdom. I'm always so blessed. So so many of you are not living in the most comfortable place around all the people that you grew up with because you're seeking first the kingdom and some of those relationships have had to become subordinate. It's not always the case, but in David and Jonathan's case, it meant separation. And the gospel is the only hope to both empower that and to comfort us because through the gospel, Jesus Christ, actually the creator of the universe, calls us his friend. Not only are you forgiven of your sin when you come to faith in Christ, but you're actually reconciled to Jesus as friend. That's a friendship that will never end and will be your comfort as the ones in this life continually shift. It empowers and it comforts as we subordinate our friendships to God and his kingdom. And so with that said, let's prepare our hearts for communion together. Communion is a meal of remembrance. It's a meal where we remember what Jesus has done to adopt us as God's children, to make us his friends. He's done nothing less than shedding his own blood and having his body broken, symbolized in the bread and the cup. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've put your hope in him. Anytime during the next three songs, we invite you to come forward or to the back, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and taste that grace, that gospel, that news that in Christ you are empowered to look to the needs of others and you are comforted as relationships shift with the movement of the kingdom. So let's celebrate, let's taste that grace, and then let's go from here as people who pursue spiritual friendships out of the overflow of what Christ has done for us. Amen?